agnostic is imagine a very personal, a very relational, a very pursuing him kind of God. In fact, most people, when we talk about engaging our imaginations, tend to use it to escape reality. Tend to use it to think of things that don't exist. Something other in that sense. Something not real. But I think what Einstein was saying, where that was really coming from, was a place where our imaginations and reality have the opportunity to interweave and to link and to connect. God created us in his image, giving us imaginations. And when we read apocalyptic literature, like the, like the book of Revelation, it invites, actually, it implores you it says you have to engage your God-given imagination to read what the Spirit is revealing. God is revealing reality that for now requires you to use your imagination. And so with that, I invite you, just for a short time, to close your eyes and to listen to Revelation chapter 4 and 5 with your imaginations. Then as I looked, I saw a door standing open in heaven, and the same voice I had heard before spoke to me like a trumpet blast. The voice said, come up here, and I will show you what must happen after this. And instantly I was in the spirit, and I saw a throne in heaven and someone sitting on it. The one sitting on the throne was as brilliant as gemstones, like jasper and carnelian. And the glow of an emerald circled his throne like a rainbow. Twenty-four thrones surrounded him, and twenty-four elders sat on them. They were all clothed in white and had gold crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and the rumble of thunder. And in front of the throne were seven torches with burning flames. This is a sevenfold spirit of God. In front of the throne was a shiny sea of glass, sparkling like crystal. In the center and around the throne were four living beings, each covered with eyes, front and back. The first of these living beings was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a human face. And the fourth was like an eagle in flight. Each of these living beings had six wings, and their wings were covered all over with eyes inside and out. Day after day and night after night, they kept on saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, the one who always was, who is, and who is still to come. Whenever the living beings give glory and honor and thanks to the one sitting on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down and worship the one sitting on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever. And they lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and they exist 
because you created what you pleased. Then I saw a scroll in the right hand of the one who was sitting on the throne. There was writing on the inside and the outside of the scroll, and it was sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel who shouted with a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals on this scroll and open it? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll and read it. Then I began to weep bitterly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll and read it. But one of the 24 elders said to me, Stop weeping. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the heir to David's throne, has won the victory. He is worthy to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb that looked as if it had been slaughtered, but it was now standing between the throne and the four living beings and among the 24 elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which represented the sevenfold spirit of God that is sent out into every part of the earth. He stepped forward and took the scroll from the right hand of the one sitting on the throne. And when he took the scroll, the four living beings and the, four, and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp, and they held gold bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song with these words. You are worthy to take the scroll and break its seals and open it. For you were slaughtered and your blood has ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have caused them to become a kingdom of priests for our God. And they will reign on the earth. Then I looked again. And heard the voices of thousands and millions of angels around the throne and of the living beings and the elders. And they sang in a mighty chorus. Worthy is the lamb who was slaughtered to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth, and under the sea, and in the sea. They sang, Blessing and honor and glory and power belong to the one sitting on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. And the four living beings said, Amen. And the twenty-four elders fell down and worshipped the Lamb. text. I hope you caught the part that you were in because you were in that scene. You know, more than any other portion of the book of Revelation, these two chapters are intended to give us incredible perspective on life, 
on our life today, right here, right now, in Langley, Surrey, wherever you live, wherever you do your day-to-day stuff, this passage, this scene from heaven is intended to orient your day-to-day life. The difficulty is that we live in an era of reality TV. We live in in an era of seeing the now and we can see so much. Right now, with our phones, we could right now see anything in the world as long as somebody else has a phone capturing it. We see with our eyes so much. In 1998, the movie, the The Truman Show, I don't know if you guys remember that, it's going way back, the 90s. Yes, thank you, thank you. The movie The Truman Show is credited with, um, in a sort of a prophetic way of almost launching the reality TV uh, whole thing. It came out in 1998, Survivor aired in 2000. And ever since then, reality TV is like everything. The line in the movie The Truman Show when they were, and if you've never seen it, I won't go into it all, but you can watch it. The, the line that is the big sort of prophetic line in that movie it, is this. It said, we accept the reality of the world with which we are presented. We accept the reality of the world with which we are presented. Think of the reality of the world with which you are being presented on your devices, on your screens as you drive through your neighborhoods. Is that it? There are many people who will tell you that reality is it. And in the daily barrage of our lives, more than any other chapters, Revelations chapter four and five break in and say, that's not it. What you experience When you walk into your office at 9 a.m. on Monday morning, that's not just it. What you experience at 3 in the morning when your kid's puking on the floor and you're down there and you've got a meeting at 6 a.m. and that's not it. Apocalyptic literature helps us bring balance into life. That's what it's supposed to do. Dr. Daryl Johnson says that apocalyptic literature engages us beyond what our eyes see and puts reality into perspective, into a cosmic and eternal perspective. And he says it does it in two primary ways. First, he says, revelation intends to set the present moment, your present moment, every moment that's present in light of the unseen realities of the future. So, Revelation and other apocalyptic literature like Daniel, Ezekiel, they're giving us a glimpse of future. So that's one of the things how it helps give us some balance in life. Jesus is coming. It reminds us of that. Jesus will bring a new heaven. He is bringing a new earth. He will reign forever. Like those are the things that give us hope for the future. They orient us and they invite us to think beyond what we're seeing. The second thing, or the second way that Revelation 
reorients or, or grounds us or gives us balance is it intends to set your present moment in light of the unseen realities of the present. And that's actually the biggest task or the biggest intention of the book of Revelation. It's not, it's, it's first and foremost thing is not to tell you what's going to come down the road. It actually is wanting to inform us for right now, for every single moment that we live. In other words, it's telling us that there's more going on around us than what we can see with our eyes, than what we can hear, than what we can Google. There's more. No matter how intelligent or how intuitive you are, your mind, your brain cannot figure it all out. No matter how sensitive your heart is, you cannot experience it all. No matter how great your imagination may be. We need the book of Revelation to come in and show us what else is happening. To expand our reality, to help us see what we can't see with our limited vision. So along with everything that we're seeing, touching, hearing, experiencing, what else is going on then? Like what, like isn't, like what else, is, something else is happening? I'm telling you right now, going out on a limb, something else is going on right now. And you are a part of it. I'm a part of it. What's going on? Revelation chapter 4. Let's see. God reveals that worship of the living God is going on around us all the time. All the time. God is at the center of continuous, unending, never stopping, blow your mind, worship and praise. He has been from the beginning of history and he always will be. Think about that. Think of the implications that it has for us. Worship didn't start when you walked in the door. Worship didn't start when this incredible team strummed the first note or when Ryan started on the keyboards or when the voice came. It was already going on, according to Revelation chapter 4. And worship hasn't stopped since we stopped singing. And it's not going to stop the moment you walk out the door. Think of that. Whenever we enter into worship, we are entering into worship that is already in progress. Greek has the weirdest way of doing grammar. This is always already in progress. Always already. It's mind-blowing. The Apostle John has been uh, uh, exiled to the prison island of Patmos, right? Why? Because he refused to worship Caesar. That's why he's there. And so, because he doesn't want to worship the Roman kingdom and its king, they said, fine, John, you want to worship something else? You are going to do that by yourself on this rock called Patmos, and it's going to suck. So you better be sure of what you're talking about here. And he was actually lucky, because a lot of times... People didn't get the option to go to the island of Patmos. They just went, and you were done. And so John says in Revelation chapter 1, verse 10, 
It was the Lord's day, and I was worshiping in the Spirit. Sounds so spiritual. He had to worship in the Spirit. He had nothing else. He's on the island of Patmos on a rock. There's no worship team. He didn't have the scriptures with him. He didn't have a buddy that he could say, hey, let's pray together. It was just him on an island isolated with a few other prisoners that were also isolated, and there's nothing there. And yet he says, it was the Lord's day, and I was worshiping in the Spirit. When all of a sudden, to his surprise, he realizes what? I'm not alone. I'm actually not worshiping all by myself. He begins to get from the spirit the revelation that worship has been going on all around him all the time. And just like it did for John on the island of Patmos, Revelation 4 and 5 gives us an apocalypse. Apocalypse, I mean, we tend to think, associate the word with doom and gloom. That's not the only meaning of apocalypse. Apocalypse is a revelation. That's an apocalypse. I had an apocalypse, an epiphany, that type of thing. And so John gets this apocalypse from the spirit of the present moment that he's in, in light of the unseen realities of the present that's going on around him. Worship is taking place quite apart from John at that time, and it's taking place quite apart from us right now. And so Revelation says, because that's happening, we want you in. Al, we want you in. Jesse, we want you in. Anita, we want you in. Sue, we want you in. Come on. Look what's happening. Do we accept? As crazy as it seems, like there's this other reality. Well, you go a little. Yes. As crazy as it seems, we are constantly presented with an invitation. Now that you have read or heard Revelation chapter 4, you will always have a 24-7 invitation for the rest of your life. You can't avoid it anymore. Remember, it's not intended, Revelation 4 and 5 are not intended to rock our world and throw us off balance or, or rock our world and, 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 and confuse us or, or, or make us feel off kilter. That's not what it's intended to do. It's actually intended to ground you. It's actually intended to give you sure footing as you walk through this world. How does, apoc- how does this apocalyptic scene do that? Well, the first thing it does is it signals for us loud and clear in chapter 4 that it's safe to walk through the door of heaven and join in with the worship that's happening in the cosmic realm. It's safe. 4 verse 1, John says, Then I looked, I saw a door standing open in heaven, and the voice, it's the voice of Jesus, said, come up here and I'll show you what's going to happen. Can you imagine that? You have to imagine it. Because it's it's not a physical door. It's not not in the back of a wardrobe that you walk through. You have to imagine it. But you have to imagine it because it's reality. 
If you choose not to imagine it, you miss out on Revelation 4 and 5. It's safe to go through the door into heaven and approach the throne of the universe. It may not be safe to approach the throne of the United States right now. You may be too daunted to approach the British throne. But friends, the throne of the universe, that's safe. That is safe. A friend of mine once wondered out loud, why does God make it so hard for us to find him on earth? He's not hard to find. Revelation chapter 4, come through the door into heaven and I will show you this God. I will show you this throne. I will show you what's going to happen. His door is always open. He's constantly inviting us to walk through it and to join in this cosmic worship that's always happening. But, but I'm not, or, but, but what about my, what about this? But we have so many buts. This but, or this invitation has no buts. You can't say, but God is this, and but I'm, there are no buts in this invitation. Come, Jesus says. And I will show you. Because in the middle of the throne, in the middle of the scene of Revelation 4 and 5, and we'll get there, and right in the middle is someone who has paid the way, the, the price for your invitation. You cannot come on any merit. You cannot manufacture an invitation of your own. You can't photocopy somebody else's. You can't bring it up on your phone. He has given you the invitation because he's paid for it. He's the rightful owner of your invitation. And he says, come. Jesus, situated on the throne, it says, it's perfectly safe for you to come to my throne. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what's been done to you. It doesn't matter what you will do tomorrow. You come now. And when you accept that invitation, you have access to the throne of the universe. Like that's even more profound than like Star Trek, the spaceship, what's the Captain Kirk's situation, being situated on the lake and he could see and they could go. It's beyond that. You have access to the throne of the universe. Some of you are looking at me blankly like, what the heck is this guy? You have access... Now, I don't claim to know what it's all about, but I have the same access. We have access to the throne of the universe. Imagine that. Engage your God-given imagination and begin to imagine what it's like when Dale Moore walks through the door into heaven and says, Jesus, you said come and here I am. And he says, I'll show you what's happening in heaven, Dale. Holy cow. And we enter that door, just like John did. What do we find? What's, I mean, like I said, we only get a glimpse, right? Four and five is only two chapters. It's only a glimpse. But it does give us some good stuff. We find two things primarily. We find a lot. We could preach a long time on this, but two things primarily. First of all, we find a throne. 
and its ruler. For verse 2, John says, I saw a throne in heaven and someone sitting on it. Now, John isn't the first human, by the way, to see the throne. In the Old Testament, the prophets uh, Micaiah, uh, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, they all got to see the throne. But John is seeing that something has changed since those guys a few hundred years before him saw the throne. Something is different about the throne. Remember Isaiah's response when he saw the throne. What did he do? Does anybody remember? What did he... What did, he, he was like, <gasps> and he fell down. I'm not worthy. I, like, I can't be here. Right? That was Isaiah, right? Watch John's response. Look, someone's sitting on the throne, and then this description of this, I mean, John didn't fall down and close his eyes. He recorded this incredible description of this one sitting, brilliant, brilliant colors. Bri I mean, powerful. Unlike any other ruler known to humanity, this is not someone who is going to grow old and frail as a ruler. This is not someone who is going to be impeached. This is not someone who's going to lose it. This ruler was like no other ruler. This ruler is complete. How do we know that? Because in the description, the numbers, we, we've talked about imagery and, and the use of numbers in Revelation. And in Revelation, whenever you come across that number seven, it means complete. It means altogether, like there's nothing lacking, but at the same time, limitless. And he talks about that in the verses None of the rulers in history have been able to claim that. Think of the great empires, the Ottoman Empire, the Roman Empire, uh, Chinese, America, Russia, Soviet Union. None of them have been able to claim completeness. They've all or will be dethroned at some point. But John says, not the ruler on this throne. Oh, no. Day after day, verse 8, night after night, those who are gathered around the throne say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord, the Lord God, the Almighty, the one who always was, who is, and who is still to come. Like he's never going to be dethroned. Whenever the living beings give glory and honor and thanks to the one sitting on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever, he's never going to be dethroned. The 24 elders fall down and they worship the one sitting on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever. He's never going to get dethroned. And they lay their crowns before the throne and they say, you are worthy, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power because you created everything. And they exist because you created what you pleased. Now the ruler is surrounded by people. The numbers that come up are 12 and 24. 24 elders, 12 representing the 12 tribes of the Old Testament. So encompassing again all of the saints before Jesus. And then the 12 apostles 
representing all of the saints after Jesus. That's where we come in. They're representing us. That's where you should see yourself. In, in amongst that group of 24, we are part of that. They're representing us. And John says that the ruler of the throne is holding a scroll in his right hand. And if you're like me, the first thing you want to know is what does the scroll say? Tell me what it says. It doesn't tell us exactly what it says. We do know that it has writing on both sides. Again, some people say that's because it's a complete scroll. There's nothing lacking. Doesn't tell us that, but I'll go with that. We do know that this, the one who's holding it in his, in his right hand, this is his plan for history. This is his plan for his creation. This is how he expects things to unfold. It's a scroll of history. It contains the plans of how God is going to bring his kingdom day after day, how he's going to move it forward. The attraction of the scroll, mostly for John, again, is not the details, but on a who. See, in order for us to know what's on the scroll, it has to be opened. And there's the big thing. Well, who can open this scroll? Who has the power to do that? Chapter 5, verse 2. Who's going to be able to enact this plan? Who is worthy to break the seals on this scroll and open it? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll and read it. And so John begins to weep bitterly. No one could open the scroll. 